Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Real Life. We're so happy that you could join us this morning. Um, let's stand up and we'll start the service.
Oh, oh, oh. 
you're here, if you are uh, new, if it's your first time, second time with us, if you haven't taken a moment to go to reallifecc.us and click on that I'm new uh, link there, please take a moment to do that before you leave today. Love to know that you're here. Uh, we're not going to pester you. We're not going to come to your house and steal your children. Uh, we're not going to sell you stuff. Uh, we just want to send you an email, so thanks for coming. Um, I want to give a quick plug, and then we're going to watch a video before our um, uh, before we get to the giving talk. Um, but uh, I, so I'm sporting today my uh, blade and beard shirt. So I know this guy; he has the coolest name ever. His name is Blade Dildine, and he is a church planter. I uh, met him a few years ago. He planted a church in Independence, Kansas, through the same organization that kind of helped us get going. Um, he now is in Utah. And he's studying to be a barber. The reason he's studying to be a barber, by the way, he's a cool barber. So he has a beard, he's got a big handlebar mustache, he's a cool dude. Um, anyway, he's studying to be a barber so that he can simultaneously do two things. Plant a church for the kingdom of God and cut people's hair. Um, so he's going to use his barber stuff and his brand to connect people with Jesus. It's a really cool thing. It's uh, called uh, uh, Co-something. I don't remember. Anyway, it's really awesome. So I'm giving a plug to Blade because um, when you go and you buy his stuff, his products, uh, it helps him plant the church. Um, and so um, I have some uh, beard butter that I bought and some beard oil that I bought. Um, and if you're wondering, I got the banker. And it is a, uh, a, a minty scent. And so I smell really good, don't I? It smells much better than the other stuff you use. Okay, much better than the other stuff I used to use. Anyway, uh, okay, so there's my plug. If you've got a beard or you know somebody with a beard, basically anybody cool, um, go to Blade and Beard on Facebook. Um, and you can find him or come, come to me, ask me about it, I'll direct you to him, uh, and uh, check out his stuff. It's really great, and it helps plant the kingdom. Okay, watch this. that I was going to go to my son and he was going to give me 700 to help me with the deposit and then I need 100 for this and 100 for that so it was like a thousand dollars I was going to ask my my son for when I go over to my grandkids you're so sweet I can't believe it oh my god Happens when we give to God is that it encourages us to be 
generous. And so I've really been thinking about this lately. Um, generosity tells a better story. Nobody wants to hear about uh, people being greedy or grumpy. You want to hear about the exciting things when somebody uh, gives something and makes somebody day and, uh, and, and it just is incredible. So here's what I, I, I want to do. If um, you have a story uh, about generosity, maybe receiving that or being able to give that in, in some way or something that God has done through your life because you were faithful to him or because you did something, um, I want to know about it. So send me a message, uh, contact me on Facebook or through the website uh, or stop me after church or whatever because um, I want to know about it and we want to get that on tape uh, and, sh and share that because um, I just think it's just cool to see that kind of stuff and, and, and hear that. Um, when you give to the church, we're able to do that for other people as, as well. Sometimes small things, sometimes bigger things, um, but just, uh, just, just give because it's awesome to be able to uh, do that. So um, back there behind DJ, if uh, you want to give this morning, you can do that at reallifecc.us. Just click on the orange give icon down the right hand corner. Uh, you can do that online as too. Click on the give uh, option or go to the website. Um, you can do that there. Also, if you're in person, we've got a bucket in the back. Uh, remember our COVID safe uh, giving bucket. So uh, thanks. Let me pray and then we'll get on. God, thanks for loving us and giving us so many good things. And uh, just thank you for stories that uh, we can share about your, uh, how you've been generous with us and then giving us the opportunity to be generous as well. God, we want to be a generous church. And so uh, help us to do that and just uh, live, as we've said before, live with an open hand um, from you and toward others as well. Um, God, would you just uh, bless us and continue to allow us uh, to be generous to those around us and to this community. Thanks for loving us and for this time. Um, God, that we can give back to you some of what you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, all. Um, about two weeks ago, we decided to tackle potty training. Um, my daughter Mila will be three in January, and it was about time whenever she can go and bring her diaper to you and say, hey, change me. So I've never done this before, so I went and bought a book, and what you do is basically take the diaper away, and, for, and, and that's how they learn. They just go, and you have to clean up a lot of messes. And so it was a quite a long three days. Um, so I didn't get a shower. It was very iffy. I think if I brushed my teeth, I don't remember. Adam took care of the other girls. I had to solely pay attention to Mila and her cues to see when she needed to go to the bathroom. And so those of you that don't know this, I didn't know before I started this, is you basically have to watch them and see kind of what their cue is to go to the bathroom. And once they start going pee on the floor, thank God we have wood floors, <laughs> you have to take them and drag them to the potty so they correlate going to the bathroom with the potty. So the reason I'm telling you this is there was pee everywhere. There's pee all over me. <laughs> and I didn't get much of a shower. I changed my clothes, changed her clothes. Um, but through all that, she still wanted me to hold her. She still loved me. And I know this sounds kind of crazy, a little different, but this is kind of my way of thinking is that no matter how, you know, if you, the way you look or you haven't brushed your teeth or you're not clean, God doesn't care. He loves you anyways. And with Mila wanting me to still hold her after she had peed on me, and she even looked at me and said, I peed all over you. <laughs> yes, she did. She still loved me and still wanted me. And so, um, and I don't know, there's just things like that in my day-to-day -day that I kind of see God a little bit. And so, no matter what you're going through, if you don't feel like you look the best or are feeling down, God loves you no matter what, and He wants you the way you are. And so, I found a scripture 
um, that kind of correlate to this. Uh, but God be enriching mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive made us alive together with Christ. That's Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. And so in this time of communion, um, just maybe reflect on yourself, get together with uh, either your family or go alone or just sit in your chair if you'd like. Uh, there are stations set up here in the back and over there for you to go get uh, communion. Um, and uh, so just uh, think about anything going on in your life and uh, just know that God loves you. Um, and then we'll go ahead and pray. Lord, please uh, allow us to take this time to reflect about how good you are to us and how you love us through anything and all things that we do, regardless of um, our past or what we may do in the future that wouldn't be um, aligned with your word. Um, please bless this time and uh, thank you for loving us. Amen.
So that one, um, uh, that's, that's good. Okay. Uh, um, spot there in the glove. Okay. Um, there's a lot. Ah, uh, that's a, it's a little wet. Okay. Somebody's missing those. Okay. Anyway, oh, oh, here, okay, I got it. Uh, I don't think I want to. Here's the. No. You don't want? I don't think it's... You sure? There's. Stuff on them. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the box looks bad, but I'm sure the chocolate's inside, or, I mean, their mouse is clearly. Yeah, I don't think I'll risk it. Got it. Okay, whatever. You're lost. Okay. You don't get these fantastic. Give me my stuff back. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm just leave watch. those out. Okay. Well, thanks for nothing. <laughs> anyway, Julia, everybody. Uh, uh, whatever. Okay. So, um, look, there was a there was a point to to that. Um, Julie, go to the next uh, slide there, the blank one. Um, uh, th that was okay. That was just for fun. All right, but. I think that we as a people present the kingdom of God to others a lot like the chocolate in the bottom of the bag covered in all of that crap. We're like, hey, we have this great thing, right? The kingdom of God and eternal life and, and, and you can live like this real life and it's this fantastic thing and I'd love to tell you about it. But in order to get to that, you've got to see all of my junk. And so we, we have this great story that we want to tell. We have this great opportunity for people to come to know Jesus and experience a life that, that many people never dreamed of before. Like, this, like you can have hope and you can have help and you can have healing and all of these things. But they never get to the good stuff because they can't get through all the garbage that we often put before that. Like the kingdom of God has come. And we're working in it. It's, it's here and now. And it's supposed to be evident in the lives of those who show allegiance to it. It's, like, it's supposed to be evident in our lives as followers of Jesus. People who have surrendered to the cross of Christ. People who are now part of the kingdom. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be evident. You know, like we swore allegiance to the crown. And we're supposed to live like that. We talked about that last week. We're supposed to live according to the kingdom that's to come. But all too often, by the time anyone sees the evidence of the kingdom of God in our lives, they've already seen too much of our crap. Jesus prayed this in Matthew chapter 6, um, verse 10. He said, come and set up your kingdom. He's talking to God. Come and set up your kingdom so that everyone on earth will obey you as you are obeyed in heaven. Jesus' goal was that through his life, and then the lives of his followers, people of the kingdom of God, we call them, everyone on earth would come to know and then to obey God. Remember the great commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, and commanded you and I'll be with you to the very end of the age. And so we have this commission as, as kingdom representatives of God. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter um, 3.9. He said the goal of God's kingdom is that everyone would be a part of it. 
That's God's goal. He's patient with us, waiting for every person possible to find real life in His Son, Jesus. But there's the sticky part. Because it doesn't matter how wonderful the chocolates are, if they're packaged in garbage, nobody's going to want them. I read this quote in this um, book I'm reading by uh, Brandon Cook. He wrote this book called How to Live and Love Like Jesus. In fact, um, I'm, I'm, thinking that, I'm thinking, by the way, just keep you thinking about this. Uh, I'm thinking about starting a, like a book club kind of thing, uh, like a life group where we'd get together and we'd read through some books. Um, there's one I want to read by Bill Hull called uh, The Cost of Cheap Grace. Um, and certainly Brandon Cook's uh, book, How to Live in Love Like Jesus. But anyway, this is what he says. We have good news of new life. That's the chocolate, right? We have good news of new life available in and through God. But if we don't demonstrate the care of Jesus and his posture in how we are with people, how we interact with people, then the message rings all of them. So we have this great message, this chocolate that's wonderful and is so good, and yet we, we couch it in, in garbage. The kingdom of God was inaugurated through the coming of Jesus. Right? We talked about that last week in, in part one. And by our surrender to him as, as king, we have entered into his kingdom. And so we live by his rule. We are people of the kingdom. And that has given us some responsibilities toward God's mission in the world. As people of the kingdom, there's a way that we're to function and a way to, that we're to behave in the world. God wants no one, Peter said, to be lost, but everyone to turn from their sin and to the Savior. And so Jesus, uh, God sent His Son to pay our sin price and to die our death and to kick off His kingdom reign. And then King Jesus commissioned his followers to continue to carry his message of hope and healing to the world. The kingdom came with Jesus, but the kingdom comes wherever we carry it. So the kingdom started with Jesus, right? He came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and the kingdom is here. He said last week, we, we read that, that, he said, if I cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, then the kingdom has come to you. And yet the kingdom is carried in and by and through us. We reflect the kingdom of God when we live according to the teachings of Jesus. As we learned last week, the kingdom of God is in opposition to the kingdom of this world. Which I think is why it's so confusing to people when we claim to be a part of the kingdom of God, but we live according to the kingdom of the world around us. So I want to take a look today at three interactions that Jesus had with uh, different individuals, three different individuals, um, and, and we're going to look at how we can make the rule and reign of God present in our reality today. So the first one I look at is John chapter 4, John chapter 4, verses 3 through 10. So Jesus left Judea and started for Galilee again. So he's... Jesus made these trips back and forth between Galilee, up around the Sea of Galilee, and then Jerusalem, which was down to the south. It took him a full day, uh, maybe two days, to get to walk from one place to the other. And so he's been down in Jerusalem. He's heading back to Galilee. This time, he had to go through Samaria. On his way, he came to the town of Sychar. It was near the field that Jacob had long ago given to his son Joseph. The well that Jacob had dug there was still there. 
Jesus sat down beside it because he was tired from traveling. It was noon. That's important to know. And after Jesus' disciples had got into town to buy some food, a Samaritan woman came to draw water from the well. Jesus asked her, would you please give me a drink of water? You're a Jew, she replied, like right off the bat. She's like, this is not supposed to happen. You're a Jew, she replied. I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink of, of water when Jews and Samaritans won't have anything to do with each other? Of course, Jesus answered, you don't know what God wants to give you, and you don't know who is asking you for a drink. If you did, you would ask me for the water that gives life. Jesus didn't qualify his interactions with other people based on social, racial, political, or financial norms. So we read the stories of, of, of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't see him hanging out with the people that we would expect him to hang out with. We see him spending time with people that we would expect him not to spend time with as a ruler of, of people, as a coming king, as somebody important. And so when he interacts with other people, he doesn't care about the color of their skin. He doesn't care about where they came from. He doesn't care about their political or their socioeconomic standing. He just sees a person. So he didn't see a woman and he didn't see a Samaritan. He didn't even see an immoral individual. He saw a person who'd been deserted. She'd been deserted by her people. Every Jew that this woman had probably ever come in contact with had treated her with hatred because of her ancestry. No one, no Jew certainly had engaged her at any real level. Nobody wanted to know her. Nobody spent any time with her. Nobody asked her what her name was. That This woman had been deserted by everybody that, that should have been there for her. She was also deserted by her peers. Her sexual past was undoubtedly the reason for that, right? Um, in, in the story, if you read more of the story, Jesus says, go and, and, and call your husband and bring him back. And, and she's like, oh, well, Jesus, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. The man you're with now is not your husband's. Is not your husband. And, and so he understood that the, the difficulty she was having in making connections with people and maintaining those relationships. And so undoubtedly, that's the reason that she was getting water in the heat of the day. See, women didn't go to get water. That was their job back then. They didn't go to get water in the heat of the day. They went early in the morning while it was still cool. And they were able to talk and hang out and find out what was going on, fill their jugs up with water and get them back into town before the sun came up. But this woman comes at noon, John says. That's, that's getting to be the hottest part of the day. So you know, why would she do that? Why would she go to this well at the hottest part of the day? Remember, this is a desert climate, right? There's a holy land, it's, it's desert, like everywhere, it's desert. Why would she do that? There's only one reason that she would do that, because she knew that nobody else would be there. She was getting water in the heat of the afternoon to avoid the shame, the condemnation of the other women who would come in the cool of the morning to draw water. She'd also been deserted by her faith. The Jews and the Samaritans were the same people, right? I mean, they came from the same ancestors. Jacob, she even makes the point to say that, that, that Jacob dug this well. Like, our father, I, I'm, I'm connected. Like, she had Jewish blood in her veins. And yet they'd been cut off 
by the southern tribe Jews from the temple and from God. She was never even given the opportunity to seek God and to find him by any other Jew. So she'd just been deserted. Been deserted by, by her people, by her peers, been deserted by her faith. And she fully expected to be deserted by this Jewish man sitting near the well in the heat of the afternoon. In, in, in fact, in polite society, Jesus, just as a Jew, would never have had a conversation with her. A, a woman in public would, would never have done that. And then you add the fact that she was a Samaritan, and then he really would have never done that. And so she expected to, to come and draw water and have this man never say a word to her. But instead of deserting her, Jesus invited her into the kingdom. If you read the story, it's this beautiful story about what happens and how she becomes this great missionary. And I find it's really cool that Jesus engaged this woman who'd been deserted in every, by every other group of people in her life and he engaged her just by saying, can I get a drink of water? You notice he didn't have this big spiel. He didn't lay it all in front. He didn't say, okay, I've got to start at the beginning and I've got to work my way through. He just said, can I have a drink? There's a lot of tension in our world today, Right? There's a lot of tension between different groups of people, and each group is fighting the other. And, and, and it seems like very few in the midst of that will ever do anything that might bridge that gap. Yet how often would, would just a simple thing like this start a conversation? Just asking for a drink of water broke down the gender and the racial barriers that existed between Jesus and this woman. If you go down in the story a little bit to verse 27, the disciples come back. They'd gone into town to buy some food. They came back to Jesus. They found him talking with this Samaritan woman. And it, and it says, that, come back, and it says this, that the disciples returned, and they were surprised to find Jesus talking with a woman. But none of them asked him what he wanted or why he was talking to her. Now, I find that kind of interesting because in the relationship between the disciples, the apostles, and Jesus, over and over in their story, what we find is that um, Jesus does something and the disciples don't understand it, and so they ask him, what are you doing? Why did you do that? Why did you say that? Why did you go there? Why did you talk to that person? But here, they see this woman, and they just don't even ask him. They're like not even interested. They just pretend like it never happened. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. I think first because um, these disciples would not have done what Jesus did. They simply would not have had a conversation with her in any way, shape, or form. So they already knew their position, right? They saw her, there's a woman and a Samaritan. We wouldn't talk to her even if we had to because of her gender and then because of her race. Now, the Samaritans were, were Jewish people, okay? So a lot of, of stuff, but just track with me for a minute. So the nation of, of Israel, the Jewish people, are made up of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. About 900 years before Jesus asks this woman for a drink of water, about 900 years before that, the ten northern tribes of Israel separated from the ten southern, or the two southern tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin in the south, the other ten in the north. Those ten tribes to the north 
were conquered eventually by Assyria. And, and what Assyria did was they took a lot of the Jewish people from those ten northern tribes and they deported them to other places. That's what they did back then. That was how they controlled the population. And, and then they brought Assyrians and they plugged them into the ten northern tribes, into this area called Samaria. And the Jews that were there had no other option but to intermarry with the Assyrians. And so to the two southern tribes of, of uh, the Jewish people, they believed that the ten northern tribes not only had left God and abandoned God, but because they had intermarried with the Assyrians, their bloodline wasn't pure. So they didn't want to have anything to do with them. They kept them from worship. They didn't just, they didn't just say, you know, there's a problem. They, did, they kept them, forcibly kept them from coming and worshiping in the temple because of their history. Now, if you, if you read some of the story commentaries, you find out that the, the two southern tribes of, of Israel and the ten northern tribes probably had about the same amount of Jewish blood in them by that time anyway, and it didn't matter. But the two southern tribes believed that they were the chosen ones and they were right. So maybe the disciples just thought that, that Jesus was tired, where they had this lack of, of judgment maybe, um, but they didn't ask him why he talked to her because I think they didn't want to know. They didn't want to ask Jesus why he was talking with this woman because they didn't want him to say, why weren't you talking to me? Sometimes I think in the faith, we keep from asking some of those questions because we already kind of know what the answer is going to be. I'm not going to ask the question of God, God, would you have me talk to this person? Would you have me deal with this person? Have me help this person because I know what you're going to say. And I don't want to do it. Look, many of those that Jesus invited into the kingdom had been deserted by their own. That was certainly the case for the woman at the well. Deserted by all the people around her, and yet Jesus invited her into the kingdom. The second interaction I want to look at comes in John chapter 8, verses 3 to 11. Here's what that says. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law of Moses brought in a woman who'd been caught in bed with a man who wasn't her husband. They made her stand in the middle of the crowd and they said, Teacher, this woman was caught sleeping with a man who isn't her husband. Now, the law of Moses teaches that a woman like this should be stoned to death. What do you say? They asked Jesus this question because they wanted to, this is important, they wanted to test him bring some charge against him. But Jesus simply bent over and started writing on the ground with his finger. They kept on asking Jesus about the woman and finally he stood up, said, if any of you have never sinned, then go ahead and throw the first stone at her. Once again, he bent over and began writing on the ground. The people one by one left, beginning with the oldest, finally Jesus and the woman were there alone. That's important to know too, they were there alone. Jesus stood up and asked her, where is everyone? Isn't there anyone left to accuse you? No, sir, the woman answered. Then Jesus told her, I am not going to accuse you either. You may go now, but don't sin anymore. Now this time, Jesus didn't just happen on a woman in the wilderness. He didn't just have to go to Samaria to meet this woman. A woman was brought to him. And then he was challenged to pass judgment on her. Right? It says that they brought the woman specifically to test him or to trap him in his response. 
Okay, she was caught in the act of adultery. No doubt in my mind that the religious leaders set it up. Like they trapped her first. Now, yeah, they probably, like they knew her, her reputation. They knew she was going to take the bait. Um, fine, whatever. But they wrongly trapped her in a sin so that they could bust the door down and catch her in the act. I also noticed that um, it was a sin for a man to commit adultery too, but they never bring him before Jesus, just her. So they must have worked out a deal, probably paid him off to catch her in the act. She was guilty. There was no way around it. And the law of Moses demanded, God's law demanded that she be killed because of that sin. And so it's interesting to me that they were trying to trap Jesus in this situation when the law was clear. They should never have even taken her to Jesus. They should have taken her directly outside of the city and stoned her there. That's what they did. But they had other motives. And I, I believe, and we don't read this in Scripture, it's just my opinion, because they intended to trap him, I think they wanted a crowd present. Remember, we read last week that, that at this point they're trying to find a reason to kill Jesus. Like they've gone from zero to 60, like really quick. He's an annoyance, let's kill him. Like that's how they went. So they weren't just trying to trap him. They were looking for a way to get him to do something or say something that they could then take him outside the city and kill him. That's what they wanted to do. So the religious leaders weren't trying to keep this quiet. When they busted the door down in that house and they dragged the woman out, I guarantee you they didn't give her time to get dressed. And they dragged her in the city. Now, but they weren't quiet as they dragged this naked woman screaming for her life. She knew she was guilty. She knew what was going to happen. They dragged this naked woman through every street they possibly can to get to Jesus, screaming and yelling and pointing fingers at her and talking about her sin and blabbing it to everybody that would hear so that by the time they got to Jesus, there's a huge crowd of people following them so that they can make Jesus look bad. That's what's going on. When they get to Jesus, they bring the woman and it says they stand her in the middle of everybody. Can you imagine having your um, deepest, darkest sin? Or maybe we'll just try this sometime. Just somebody, just stand up in the middle, tell us your deepest, darkest sin and let us all stand around and point fingers. That's what's going on. Like, I can't imagine, like, look, I, like, I'm, I'm your preacher. You know, I'm not perfect. If you knew the things that sometimes went on in my head, you would probably not come to church here anymore. <laughs> um, this is probably not just me. Every preacher out there is probably in the same boat. But look, that, like, we don't want those secret things out in the open. And here her sin is exposed, and not just her sin, but she as a person is exposed and, and, and open to all of these people who are standing there watching her and shouting at her and calling her every name in the book. She's confronted. This huge crowd. And then she's confronted by Jesus with her and her sin. And it's not just secret anymore. It's out in the open. There was nothing for her to hide behind. And then she stands in front of the only person in history who had never sinned. Her sin was exposed in front of the one guy who never sinned at all. Man, it's amazing to me. 
And, and, and from that perspective, from that standpoint of sin and, and, and holiness, she stood before the one guy who couldn't possibly understand what was going on in her life. And we have no idea what Jesus wrote on the ground. A lot of people have speculated a lot of different things. Maybe he bent down on the ground and he began to write out um, maybe the sins of some of the major people in the Old Testament, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, some of those guys that religious leaders looked up to. Maybe he wrote down on the ground some of their sins um, just to kind of say, hey, look, everybody, and, and like all these people we look up to have sin in, in their life. Maybe he did that, I don't know. Maybe he wrote down the sin of the people who were standing around him, those religious leaders. Maybe he wrote down their sin, and, and that's why they left, because they saw, like, I did that yesterday. <laughs> I, I don't know why he bent down, and I don't know what he was writing in the ground, but I know why he stood up. It says that they kept asking Jesus about the woman and finally he stood up for her. He's going to address the crowd. He's going to say, hey, whoever has never sinned, cast the first stone. And so he stands up for this woman, the one person in the crowd that he probably shouldn't have stood up for. At least that's what the religious leaders thought. She stood there in disgrace. Jesus was the only one who came to her rescue. We, we read that. Where is everyone? They've all left. It's just us. He was the only one that came to their rescue. The only one who stood up for her when all the other people stood apart from her. That's a difficult thing, isn't it? Whether it's at work or maybe when we were younger in school when, when there's somebody getting picked on. Everybody else is over here and we're comfortable because we're part of the crowd. And then there's this one person. It's difficult to stand with that one person. That's what Jesus did. Jesus understood that a woman had been through enough. She had received plenty of punishment for her sin. What she needed in that moment was not more condemnation, but was just a little compassion. Look, many of those Jesus invited into his kingdom had been disgraced by the Roman. Here's the next interaction, John chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. Jesus went to Jerusalem, maybe been in Galilee, back down to south to Jerusalem, for yet another Jewish festival. In the city near the Sheep Gate was a pool with five porches. Its name in Hebrew was Bethsaida, something like that. You can't do any better, it's okay. Many sick and blind and lame and paralyzed people were lying close to the pool. And beside the pool was a man who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw the man and realized that he had been crippled for a long time, he asked him, do you want to be healed? The man answered, sir, I don't have anyone to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. That there was, that, 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 now, we don't know if this is real or not, but I suspect it probably was. There's a story that in this particular pool, um, the water was still, but every once in a while it began to ripple like there was something going on in the water. And if you were the first one into the pool after the water had been stirred up, you would be healed. 
And so that's why all of these lame and crippled and blind people were laying all around the pool because when the water was stirred, they could get in. And so Jesus says, do you want to be well? And he says, I don't have anybody to put me into the pool. Apparently, he would have had difficult getting to the pool by himself. He would have been pushed out of the way by other people. Or maybe he had to crawl and he just couldn't get there fast enough. I try to get in, but someone always gets there first. Jesus just says, pick up your mat, uh, your mat and walk. And right then the man was here healed. He picked up his mat and he started walking around. And that happened on the Sabbath. Remember, the Jews are looking for a reason to, to accuse Jesus and punish him. So that's important that that happened on the Sabbath. They, they bring that up later. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Now, at first, it sounds like Jesus has found a situation that's completely different from the two other interactions that he has with the two women, right? Their situations were pretty severe. And when we think, well, this, this guy doesn't have his bad. He's just, he's just crippled, maybe, you know? It's, it's, not, it's not as terrible, maybe, as some of the other people. But, but, a, but a man who was crippled in the first century would have been in the same situation as the first woman at the well, deserted by almost everybody. It took a lot of time and energy to care for somebody like that in the first century. They, they didn't have um, beds and tables and wheelchairs and things. They could wheel people around. And they had to be carried everywhere that they went. They had to have constant help and, and, and be there. I mean, it was a difficult situation. It's hard now. We've got some, some friends who have a son in that situation. He can't do anything on his own. And, and it's difficult. I can't imagine doing that in the first century. Or you couldn't just microwave a meal. You had to build a fire. I mean, there's all of these things that compl complicate that situation. And so this man, no doubt like every other man who was crippled and couldn't do the things that he was supposed to do, had probably been deserted by almost everyone else. Friends and family gave him little time that, look, we've got to live our own lives. We have our own things to do. And so no one stayed to help him into the pool. They were all busy with their own families and their lives and their work and the things they had to do. He'd also been disgraced. As a man in the first century, this was his role. You learn a trade, you follow in your father's footsteps, you get married, pretty young, and you start having babies. And then you take the place of your father, your name, you carry on the name of your family. And so whatever it is that you do in your life, whether it's um, farming or, or, or uh, uh, ranching or doing some other job, you followed in your father's so you carried on the name. This man couldn't do it. He had no wife. He had no children. He had nobody to help him. And he was a disgrace to his family because he couldn't carry on the name. So here he, he lies by the pool, probably pushed to the back by other people who had less debilitating issues than him and could get into the water faster. And so he just got pushed back farther and farther and farther. So the people saw him that they would have thought um, either his parents must be terrible sinners or he must be a terrible sinner to have this punishment and be unable to get into the pool. Maybe all of those reasons are why he'd been discounted as someone not worthy of much effort. He couldn't contribute, he couldn't provide. No woman wanted him. His family only had pity for him. But Jesus, 
sees him. And the text says that he, he walked through the crowd. All of these people were laying out by the pool. And all of them had issues. Jesus could have stopped at any one of those people and worked a miracle in their lives. But he walks right to this guy. And I wonder if maybe he walks to this guy because this guy needed it most. Each one waiting for the water to be stirred in the hope of healing. Jesus walks past them all to this man. Do you want to be healed? And I think it wasn't about the question with, with, with Jesus. I don't, I don't think he was looking, does this guy feel sorry for himself? Do you feel like a victim? Is there, is there any issues? I, I don't think the answer mattered much. I think the real surprise was that Jesus, as a leader of men, with all of these people following him, walks past everybody else and singles out this insignificant man. Do you want to be healed? The guy says, look, I've nobody helped me. I've been completely abandoned by, by everybody in, in my life. Yeah, I want to be healed, but I can't do it on my own. I can't get there on my own. Jesus isn't worried about the man's reasons. He just is going to heal him. And so he says, pick up your mat and walk. And he did. See, many of the people that Jesus invited into his kingdom had been discounted by the room. Jesus' three interactions teach us something very important about the kingdom of God and about how God set up the kingdom in the world. Given the chance, I believe that Jesus' disciples, his followers, those people who were with him all the time, I think they would have treated each of the three individuals that we just read about exactly like the crowd in that moment. Had Jesus not been there, the disciples would not have talked to the woman at the well. If Jesus would not have been there, the disciples, when the religious leaders brought this woman and said, what do we do? They would have said, kill her. She broke the law. It's cut and dry. You caught her. She needs to die. I don't think the disciples would have even gone to the pool to see the people there had Jesus not led them there. But by Jesus' actions, he shows that if we don't share the kingdom now, others won't experience it, the kingdom then. If we don't share the kingdom of God in the moment, when we have those opportunities to connect with people, um, to, 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 to deal with whatever it is they're going through, if we don't share the kingdom in that moment, they might not experience the kingdom when it comes. In each of our three examples, Jesus restored the individual's humanity. To the woman at the well, he showed her you're important. Even though you feel like an outcast. I'm going to simply talk to you. I'm going to engage you. I'm going to ask you for a drink of water. And, and through that, I'm going to introduce you to the kingdom of God. To the woman caught in, in adultery, he said, you're broken. There's sin. He said, go and sin no more. Right at the end, he admitted there's sin in your life. You're broken, but you're not beyond healing. I'm not going to continue. I'm going to give you compassion. Now go and sin no more. Now live like you're part of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. And to the man by the pool, he said, you're noticed. Even though you feel it. 
Now, this is a consistent message of the kingdom of God and why even today people are drawn to the kingdom of God. Because they're important. They're not beyond healing. They're noticed in the kingdom. I want to look at one more verse really quickly, and it comes later in the story of the man by the pool. The religious leaders um, were causing trouble for Jesus, right? They were trying to catch him and, and trap him because he had healed the man on the Sabbath, and, and that was a day that they weren't supposed to work. And so Jesus has this response as he um, knows what they're thinking. He says this, My father has never stopped working, and this is why I keep working. See, our natural tendencies are towards selfishness and sin. That's the kingdom of the world that we live in. That's our flesh. That's what we do. But the Holy Spirit transforms us so we look more like Jesus every day. And so things like patience, they don't come naturally to us. But patience is a fruit of Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And so patience is a norm for kingdom people. Love does not come naturally to us. That, that, that kind of agape love, the Bible says, like unconditional love, that doesn't come naturally to us. We may love the people who love us, but loving people outside of that is difficult for us. And yet, as the Holy Spirit grows us in our faith, so we look more like Jesus every day, loving people becomes part of the norm of the kingdom. As so we go to Galatians, we read, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are the things that should be evident in the lives of kingdom people. It's important for followers of Jesus, you and I, to make present the kingdom of God in our lives in order to bring the full presence of the kingdom of God to our location. If we're not living like we're part of the kingdom of God, nobody is seeing that. They don't understand that there's another kingdom, there's another way to, to live, that this life we have isn't the real life that we could have. Let me say it this way as our bottom line today. When Jesus reigns in your reality, you're making present his kingdom in your. This is, this is what our call is as, as believers, as followers of God, as people of the kingdom, to make the reign of Jesus a reality in our lives so that other people see that there's another way to live. When we live life in the power of the Holy Spirit, we create, we work, we love, we discover as kingdom people. And we're bringing God's kingdom to bear in our world. So I want to tell you three things that you need to know about you this morning. Three things you need to remember about you. If you're not a believer, I want you to pay close attention to these. The first thing you need to know is that you're important in God's kingdom. You may feel like the woman at the well. You may feel like an outcast and like nobody wants to spend time with you and why didn't anybody blah, blah, blah. God's got a place for you in his kingdom. You're important to his plan, to what he's trying to do. He also understands that as, as people, we've blown it, right? We've sinned, we've messed up. We've all got baggage and hurts and hangups and, and things that need to be healed in us. And so you may be broken, but you're not beyond healing. Whatever it is that's been going on in your past, that should never keep you from the present that God wants to bring you into. 
yeah, you're broken, look around the room. If you're joining us uh, here in person online, just know we look around the room, every single one of us is broken. We got things in our lives that need to be healed and need to be restored. God can do that. And finally, you're noticed by God and by us. We're glad that you're here. We want you to be a part of the kingdom. Now, if you're already a part of God's kingdom, you're a, a, one of those kingdom people, make Jesus reign present in your reality. And you do that by restoring humanity, just like Jesus did, living out the teachings of Jesus, reflecting his rule and reign to your world. I, I want to leave you um, with this thought Remember the chocolate and the garbage from earlier? We have this great thing in the kingdom, but sometimes it's couched with a whole bunch of junk around it. Jesus, the Bible says, holds the keys to the kingdom. But you and I, we hold the door. So the question for each of us is this. To everybody who's not yet a part of the kingdom, are we holding that door open or closed? God, I thank you for loving us and I thank you for, for healing our brokenness. I thank you for bringing us into life in a way that we never dreamed of before. I thank you that each and every one of us here watching online and all of those people that we don't even know yet are important to you. You notice them where they're at and what's going on in their lives. You understand and you want to bring healing and fullness in those situations. And so God, would you help us to live as people of the kingdom of God? And that through our lives and the way that we live, that we make the rule and reign your son Jesus present in our reality. Help us to do that, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now look, if you're ready to experience real life in the kingdom of God, or you're ready to go public with your faith, um, we want you to do a, a couple things. If you're joining us online, you can go at live.reallifecc.us. If you're joining us online, you can click the button in the chat, uh, raise your hand button, or up at the top of the page, it says next steps. And if you Click on that, it'll take you to our website and it'll uh, be a short form that you can fill out there and let us know what God is doing um, in, in your life. If you're joining us on Facebook, you're going to have to jump over to reallifecc.us forward slash I'm ready. You can just go to the website, click on next steps uh, at the top nav bar and then click on I'm ready. If you're here in person, you can either take advantage of the website reallifecc.us uh, and click on the next steps and I'm ready fill out that form, or you can make your way to the back of the connection hub back there. Melody and maybe some other folks will be back there, some of our volunteers, if you're ready to make a decision for Jesus, be part of his kingdom, or, um, or, or maybe ready to be baptized, uh, talk to somebody back there after the service, and we'll um, make sure we get you on the list to do that. We want to make sure, um, as a church, that we're holding the door open for, for you, for you online, and for everybody, every person possible that God might bring into us, uh, that we might restore humanity and bring them into 
relationship and into the kingdom. Remember that no matter um, matter the kingdom, uh, uh, matter how the kingdom of this world has made you feel, you're important, and you're not beyond healing, and you're noticed. And we love you. We want you to come to the table and experience the goodness of God in all of His glory. Let's stand up and we'll sing our last song this morning.
Now and the not yet are the worlds we live in as followers of Jesus. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated and we have entered into his kingdom. Yet God has not subjected all of his creation under his crown. Time is racing forward to a moment we can't see where the first kingdom and the forever kingdom meet. Followers of Jesus live in the balance. We live in the kingdom that came so that we're ready for the kingdom that's coming. We live a both-and existence. The kingdom has both come and it is coming. Are you ready? Join us September 27th for the third and final message of our series, As It Is in Heaven, as we discover how to live in the kingdom now so we're ready for the kingdom that's coming. <laughs>